this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. The Jay Allen Show is streaming now on safetyfm.live. Hello and welcome to The Jay Allen Show. We are broadcasting live from Orlando, Florida. This is your host, Jay Allen. On this episode, like all episodes, we're going to talk about everything because we just don't focus on one subject. We focus on a little bit of everything that's going on around the world. I do appreciate the time that you give me on a weekly basis for us to have these basic discussions about what's going on in the world here. Today, we're going to have a conversation about things in the world of safety. As we have discussed in the previous episodes, from time to time, we will have different discussions. But today is a discussion about safety. Now, I'll tell you, I know that I tend to focus a little bit on the past and some of the things that we had going on before. But I'll tell you that with the Safety FM flagship show, I don't think we could have been able to pull this interview off. So let me tell you what we have going on today. Today we have an interview with Judy Agnew. She is recognized as a thought leader in the field of safety leadership, safety culture, and behavioral safety. As a senior vice president of safety solutions at Aubrey Daniels International, Judy helps organizations create evidence-based strategies that use positive practical approaches to improve safety performance, ensuring long-term sustainability and organizations that are safe by design. The complexity of today's work environment requires scientific approach to the human performance component of safety. Applying her PhD in psychology and more than 25 years of expert consulting, Judy helps clients analyze the impact of organizational systems such as work procedures, management practices, performance metrics, and incentives. She then helps leaders adjust systems and practices to enable and encourage safe work. Judy understands what it takes to ensure that everyone from the boardroom to the front line engages in proactive behaviors required to create and sustain a culture of safety. Judy has worked in a variety of industries, including transportation, oil and gas, mining, forest products, utility, food, and non-food manufacturing, distribution, and retail. Her work has spanned in diverse employee population and organizational issues, including organizational culture change, safety leadership effectiveness, employee engagement, and ensuring consistency of life-saving behaviors. In addition to industry and corporate events, Judy has presented at major safety conferences, including the American Society of Safety Engineers, National Safety Council, and Behavioral Safety Now. She is frequently interviewed for national and trade publications and is the author of three highly regarded safety books, Safety by Accident, Take the Luck Out of Safety, Leadership Practices that Build a Sustainable Safety Culture with Aubrey Daniels, Removing Obstacles to Safety with Gail Snyder, and A Supervisor's Guide to Safety Leadership. Now, I'll tell you in the past, I don't think we would have been able to get this interview and I'm going to say that it's mostly based that we talk about human and organizational performance. And there's nothing wrong with human and organizational performance. But if you're familiar with Aubrey Daniels, you are aware that most people are familiar with them based on behavioral safety. Today, I would like to welcome Judy Agnew to the show. 
your company reached out to me. So I was kind of surprised, especially for, for the kind of show that I normally do about my subject matter. So what was what was the point of interest? Well, um, you know, we're, we're always looking for ways to, to get our message out to people. And we know a lot of the folks that you've had on your show. And uh, I guess we just sort of felt like we would love to have the chance to kind of share our message and join the conversation. Good, because I always think it's interesting because a lot of people are a little hesitant at first, especially if they're not part of the part of the house of where most of my speakers come from. Yeah, so, yeah. The way that I look at it is I think that there's always a good conversation that can be had from any side of the house, especially because we're all trying to make sure that people make it home safe. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, I'm really a believer that, uh, there's something to be learned from every approach to safety. And, uh, I, I think that a behavioral approach, unfortunately, has gotten a bit of a bad rap in many cases. And, uh, so I always look forward to the opportunity to kind of, uh, share our perspective and talk about how we can see everything working together to improve safety. Well, I always like to ask the question starting off was, how does everything start for you? Where, how did you yeah. get involved with safety? Why did you decide to get involved with safety is normally the best question to ask. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't a decision per se for me. Um, <laughs> you know, so I started, I have a PhD in behavioral psychology. And so my passion was always just helping people change behavior in whatever, you know, format, in whatever venue. Um, and when I joined ADI, I started working not in safety. And, and just to give some history on ADI, um, our work, we've been around for 40 years. I haven't been there for all 40, but I've been there for 28 years. Um, but early on, uh, the consultants would just go into an organization and say, what do you want to improve? And if it was productivity, they'd work on productivity. If it was safety, they'd work on safety. So we had been doing safety work sort of all along, not, not really a specialized product, but we've been doing it. So when I joined ADI, there was some safety work going on, but I, I wasn't involved in it for whatever reason. I just started um, my very first project was a quality project. So I did a lot of that. I did a lot of, um, of customer service kind of work. Um, and then I was just invited by a colleague to work with her on a behavior-based safety project in a mine. And I was sort of hesitant. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about the safety stuff. And um, she said, you know, I know it's not sexy. I know, you know, safety doesn't sound very interesting, but I, I guarantee if you try it out, you're going to like it. And so sure enough, I did. I mean, I, I loved what I loved most is working with the frontline population because most of my other work was with supervisors and managers, and that was fine. But um, I really loved working with the front frontline population and um, really empowering them in more ways than just around safety. Uh, it was just so rewarding to see people who had so much to offer and and they knew they had so much to offer, but they really weren't being given a chance. And so uh, that really got me hooked. And so I continued for a few years doing some work outside of safety, but then pretty quickly I specialized and I've been doing really nothing but safety for many, many years. So does ADI originally reach out to you or do you, are you going after H, uh, after ADI? And then the other question becomes right away too, how do you go from a behavioral psychologist, which you still are, and decide yep. to go into the consulting world? Oh, well, that, that was really because 
when I started college, I was interested in business. And so my first year I was taking business courses and uh, accounting was one. And I thought, okay, if this is business, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started, I took a year off actually, because I just, I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And then when I went back to university, I took um, a variety of classes and a behavioral psychology class was one of them. And I just thought, this is it. This is what I love. This is, you know, just, it just sounded really interesting to me. And so being able to combine my interest in business with behavioral psychology is what really led me to, and I was always as, as a graduate student, that was really what I wanted to do, to use what I knew about behavior to work in the business setting. And so ADI at the time was really one of the only behavioral consulting firms out there. And I read a lot of Aubrey Daniels books and, you know, it was really my dream job. Um, and then I just happened to meet Aubrey at a conference and, you know, had an opportunity actually to help him with a book chapter that he was writing when I was a graduate student. And so it kind of went from there. This is The Jay Allen Show. Have you learned about a human and organizational performance and you wanted more? Well, now is your chance. Fisher Improvement Technologies is conducting an advanced HOP practitioner workshop. Now is your opportunity to learn these advanced hop techniques in this two-day workshop that is designed to give leaders the ability to understand and manage integrations of advanced error reduction in organizations also known as ERA. Participants are provided with multiple experiential learning opportunities to ensure they can use the information in their day-to-day interactions. For more information, go to AeroHP.com. That is A-E-R-O-H-P.com. And click on the link that says Open Enrollment. And we're back with Judy Agnew from Aubrey Daniels International. Oh, pretty. That's pretty interesting. So all of a sudden your dream job lands in front of you. So how does the path start for you? How does it, how does it go where you go from being a person that's helping to all of a sudden now you're at ADI? Yeah. So, uh, well, (laughs) and I know, and I know I'm, I'm asking questions from a long time ago, but I just find the story so interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, um, you know, and of course I was interested in, in working with Aubrey. So, you know, I, I made that clear. And then it, it really, like many things, timing is everything. When I was uh, coming out of graduate school, they were looking for um, some people. They had a really large quality project that they were doing and they were in a position to be able to hire some folks. And um uh, you know, who knows why they picked me? Uh, you know, sometimes I look back and think, I'm not sure I would hire me. <laughs> um, just because I was young, you know, and inexperienced, but, uh, but they took a chance. And, uh, and so here I am 28 years later. I know, but you are now, well, I don't know how long it's been, but you are the vice president of safety solutions. So when, where do you start off and how does this actually transition? How does it go far along? I know that you start off with portions yeah. of the story on how it went, but what do you start off as? Are you a consultant yeah. walking in the door? Or what yeah. So, so yes, I was a consultant, of course, started off kind of in a more junior position, but as the years went by, I just did a whole lot of consulting work, sort of boots on the ground, going into clients, uh, doing assessments, doing training, follow-up consulting, support coaching. Uh, and I did that for many, many years. I mean, that just had, you know, a series of clients that I would work with. Um, and then, 
as time went on and I got more and more experience, um, I moved into more of managing projects uh, and our bigger projects. And then I started, much to my own surprise, selling um, business, <laughs> uh, which is not something I ever thought I would mm-hmm. do. But, you know, turns out when you're passionate about something, it's it, you make a good salesperson because I, I, it's not, you know, I used to think it would be like selling used cars, but really... I believe so strongly that a behavioral approach is helpful and really makes a big difference. So it's easy for me to uh, talk to people about how it might help with their organization. Um, And then I started writing and writing was, you know, you can't, you can't get through graduate school without doing a lot of writing. So it was something I I did, but um, again, finding just something I'm so passionate about, it became easier to write about it as well. And so um, just, you know, gradually started writing more. And in 2010, Aubrey Daniels and I wrote the book Safe by Accident. And uh, that really was a turning point for me in the sense that it was a, a book that really captured a lot of people's attention. Uh, they were interested in having us talk about it. And so I got a lot of in- invitations to to give keynotes and things like that. And so that really changed the trajectory of my career. And I started doing more of that kind of stuff, more, um, more speaking, more writing, um, that kind of thing. So it's been, it's been a fun career. So let's go through that. Let's go through the belief system that you have with the behavior-based safety side of the house and how you actually see the approach that safety should be looked at. Because I think that sometimes when people start taking a listen to the different variations yeah. there are from safety, that people don't take a look at everything that's out there. They they heard of one, yeah. they stick to that particular one, and they don't want to look yeah. at anything else. So could you tell people some of, some of the things that that you teach and that are you, that you actually bring into organizations. Yeah. And, yeah, and I'm glad you asked that because I think um, behavior-based safety has, has done a whole lot for safety as I think most people will acknowledge. Um, but because it became so popular, uh, there were a lot of people who sort of came out of the woodwork saying they did behavior-based safety when they really didn't know too much about the science of behavior. And so unfortunately there were many sort of subpar behavioral programs out there. And so that led to, you know, not very effective programs of led to people calling it a blame the worker process, which is just drives me crazy because it is so not the blame the worker. It is in fact the opposite of that. Um, so, so I'm glad to have the opportunity to kind of talk about that. And, and, and I find today so many people will say, Oh, we don't want that behavior stuff. And so the word behavior is almost become this taboo thing that you shouldn't talk about because people have a bad taste in their mouth. Um, you know, what I would like to tell people is there's a science behind what was behavior-based safety, what is behavior-based safety. There are many bad programs out there. That doesn't mean you should reject anything with the word behavior in it. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that oh, it does. Lot, it does. And it's such a shame. Um, you know, the bottom line is, Everything we accomplish in safety is accomplished through someone's behavior, whether that's senior leaders making decisions to fund something, whether it's an engineer making a decision in terms of how to how to um, build equipment in such a way that it's safer uh, or all the way down to, of course, frontline supervisors and frontline employees. So we all have to engage in the right behaviors if we're going to create the safest possible workplace. And so to better understand behavior is just 
to better create a safer workplace. If we can understand what are the things that influence a frontline supervisor to spend more time out in the field, interacting with people, asking questions, uh, helping, as opposed to just being a safety cop. If we can understand that, then we can create conditions where supervisors will do more of that, and that's going to help safety. If we can understand why senior leaders make the decisions they do, why they cling to, for example, lagging indicators and therefore drive kind of a reactive approach, if we can understand that, then we can begin to change it. Uh, and that's going to impact safety. So, you know, be, a behavioral approach is really just about understanding behavior in any circumstance, anybody's behavior, and then being able to make adjustments to improve that behavior. So, where did you start seeing where people started looking at this as a bad word? being related to behavior because I see so many different concepts of safety, but I'm always, always been trying to trigger on when exactly it occurred that people started looking at it from a different light where they started saying, well, this is not for me. Yeah. What do you have like a timeline or a time frame or something that was occurring at the time when you started to notice? The change? Well, uh, you know, there was, there was always resistance um, from the very beginning from some unions um, and they just decided that behavior-based safety was about blaming the worker uh, because it focused on changing worker behavior. And those are not the same things at all, but they just really believed it was and they, you know, in all good intent, uh, were trying to protect uh, their folks from something they thought was not helpful. So there was always that kind of element there. Uh, but I think it really, it was really after probably 10 to 15 years of behavior-based safety where, again, there were there were people that were, you know, marketing themselves as behavioral experts that um, were not at all. Um, and, and by the way, the, the behavioral community, people who are trained in behavior analysis, it's a fairly small community. Uh, you know, I know most of them, the, you know, the, so, so, you know, you'd see these people and you go, I, you know, I don't know who that is, uh, but I know they're not trained in behavior analysis. Um, and that doesn't mean they, they wouldn't necessarily do good work, but they, they didn't have the scientific foundation. And so a lot of people thought, oh, this is just about getting people to do observations on each other and getting people to do feedback. Well, it's a lot more complicated than that. It, yes, it's partly that, but it's about understanding behavior and context. It's about looking at what are the things that are influencing behavior and changing those things, not just giving someone feedback. Um, and so when people took that kind of superficial, almost like a formulaic approach to behavior-based safety, that's when things started going south. Where, you know, af after a while, of course, it wasn't having an impact. Uh, in some cases, people thought it was the only thing they need to, needed to do. And so they apparently, I never saw this myself, but maybe stopped doing some of the other things they were doing around hazard recognition and those kinds of things. Um, and then, you know, the, the, then of course, things didn't go well. Um, and so people started saying, this behavior stuff doesn't work. Um, you know, and I always say it's like anything else. Nothing works if you don't use it properly. Um, if you really understand behavior scientifically, 
you're going to make it work because you're going to make adjustments to what you're doing based on what the data are telling you. And if it's not working, then you need to change what you're doing because you're you're not you're not making the right adjustments to make behave, the safe behavior more likely. This is the Jay Allen Show. Hi, everybody. Todd Conklin. I know lots of you get your information while you drive down the road or sit on planes or sit in meetings and look interested. And now you should know that three of my books are available for your listening pleasure on Audible. With the help of Jay Allen and Safety FM, we've produced three of the books, Workplace Fatalities, The Five Principles of Human Performance, and my very first book, Simple Revolutionary Acts, and they're available now where you get audiobooks. And we're back with Judy Agnew from Aubrey Daniels International. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because I think that that's kind of a focal point there. Because if you're saying that people are starting to lose the way that they focus on things and then they're not getting correct data, because let's say, for instance, they're doing a root cause analysis Mm -hmm. or if they're doing a a job observation, if they're not doing it to the way that it should be laid out, of course, the data that's going to come back is going to be incorrect. Exactly. So when you start seeing a lot of this occur, what can you do to help organizations to get, I guess, We'll say to get back on the correct path. Of course, I'm going to have some more questions, but I want to hear your concept on that. Bird. Yeah, well, and, and, and that's a that's a good question, because there's a lot of a lot of really great processes that I think organizations put in place that if people use them properly the way they're intended, it, it really would make a difference. Um, and what we do is we say, OK, if you're not getting the outcomes you want from whatever it is, incident investigations, near miss reporting is another great example. Uh, if you feel like people are just kind of going through the motions, they're just pencil whipping, you know, the job safety analysis that they're doing, then you've got to look at. Well, what happens to people? How are we setting them up to do it? Are we giving them the time to do it? Do they have the training? All those kinds of things. But then are, what happens to them when they do it? If it's just a bunch of paperwork that they do and it goes into a black hole and they don't see any positive impact as a result of doing it, then, you know, they're likely to stop doing it. They're going to just quickly pencil whip it so that they can get back to the real work. And so a big part of what we do is say, you know, we've got to make this stuff meaningful for people. We have to have conversations with them about what they've done. You know, let's say someone does a pre-task risk assessment and they do a, a, a thorough job of it. If someone's there saying, tell me about this, tell me what you did. And then what adjustments are you making based on having taken the time to do this? Well, you're now making it more like that person is going to do one in the future because you're starting to have a conversation. You're helping them see, you know what? I did make some changes to what I did because I took the time to do that analysis thoroughly as opposed to just, did you do it? Did you not do it? Check the box. You know, no follow up, no talk about why are we doing this in the first place? And is it having an impact? And if you are, as a supervisor are talking to somebody about doing pre-task risk assessments and every time you talk to them, they say, yeah, no, I did it, but I didn't change anything. You know, it didn't help me. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Maybe, maybe we've got to change our process. Maybe there's something different we need to be doing, but to just let people keep on doing things that they don't see value in, that they don't see impact of, then, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when people pencil whip. Well, and that's a point that I would love for you to drive home because I think that sometimes that's some of the miscommunication that's out there. People believe that if they actually do 
a assessment if they're doing a job observation once they're actually done and they actually cram the file into a drawer mm-hmm. all of a sudden they believe that that change is going to occur right. it's also not going to make them safer it's not going to do anything if you don't take the data and go back and use it for something exactly and that's by the way one of the things that happened to a lot of behavior-based safety programs where people were doing observations they'd enter them into a computer and not do anything with them well why would i keep doing observations if I never see that anything changes. You know, a good behavior-based safety program is one where when I go out, when I take the time as a frontline employee to go out and do observations, that I then see data that says, you know what, we're doing this behavior more frequently the right way. Or we have had uh, some good conversations and we're changing this process as a result of those observations. So anything that shows me that my doing observations has made some sort of impact, it's improved something, I'm going to keep doing it. But if I just turn these forms in and they go into a black hole and I never see any data and I never see anything change, then it just becomes about a quota and paperwork and it's meaningless and you know people don't want to do it. But that can happen with anything. It can happen with, you know, pre-test checklists, any, anything <laughs> that, you know, that we do in safety can, can fall victim to the same problem. One of the things that I love about the HOP movement is it's really brought to light the fact that we've got to let people talk about <laughs> what they're doing, what's working, what's not working. Um, because the more we do that, the more engaged people are going to get, the more they're going to feel reinforced by participating in safety activities because they're going to see change. And that's what it's about. I'm almost thinking that you must have exactly no, you must have the script of what I'm going to ask you next because that is exactly where I was going to <laughs> oh, go. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> no, and I wanted to ask your opinion about that because, of course, you're hearing a lot lately about safety differently mm-hmm. or human and organizational performance, however you want to word yeah. it. You know, the, the key phrase, the key phrase that's going on right now, even though a lot of people are calling it um, new view of safety, even though I the, what I can discover or have been able to discover, it's been around for about 27 years right. so far. So <laughs> I don't know how that's new, yeah. but to somebody it is. What is your opinion on that? And I'm just asking for an opinion. And then I then I want to talk to you a little bit about more, a little bit about the philosophy of what you hear about. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm, I, I like a lot of the things that I hear about it. Um, I I mean, in fact, when Aubrey and I wrote Safe by Accident, I was reading Just Culture and I was looking into it and I just thought, oh, this is great. It, it, it fits perfectly with a behavioral approach. I saw it as very complimentary. Um, and I have been grateful to the movement for a number of things because they've been, uh, frankly, they've been better able than we as behavior analysts have to convince more people that we need to stop punishing people. Uh, that we need to start talking to people more and asking people about what they're doing, that we need to look at behavior in context. We need to understand the systems within which people are working. Uh, All of those things, I think they've done a a fabulous job of really bringing to the forefront, getting the conversation going. So more and more people are willing to have those conversations. Uh, We've always thought those things and we've tried to get at them, uh, but, you know, again, just not as successfully, I think, as some of the HOP folks have. So I think it's, it's, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry about that. I was just going to say, I think, I think it's um, very complimentary. And what's been disturbing to me is when I hear some of those folks um, being quite critical of a behavioral approach um, and it's, 
it's unfortunate because I think it's all based on misunderstanding. It's based on their understanding of a poorly designed and executed BBS system as opposed to a behavioral approach, a behavioral science approach. And I think to dismiss a behavioral approach is to really miss out on the opportunity to learn, right? It's all about organizational learning and the science of behavior has a ton to teach people about how to improve safety. Uh, so it's just unfortunate that, that it gets dismissed by some folks. This is The Jay Allen Show. Are you tired of not being able to reach the people inside of your organization? What if there's a better approach? What if you could contact them in a click of a button? Here at Safety FM, we can assist you reach your team via podcast. How about setting up a private podcast for just you and your team members? We will cover topics that are important to you and your company. Visit safetyfm.com. That's safetyfm.com and click on services for more information about your own private podcast. Safety FM, a safety focused moment venture. And we're back with Judy Agnew from Aubrey Daniels International. Well, now the interesting thing is I've had a pretty interesting mix of people come on to mm-hmm. the show and I've had people from the HOP side of the house, people from the BBS side of the house, and they all have different opinions on how hop came about. And you being a scientist, I have to ask, of course, the following question is going to be worded kind of weird, but it was based on a conversation that I had with Tim Ludwig. Mm-hmm. He stated that if it wouldn't have been because of behavior-based safety, Hop would have never existed. Mm. What is your feelings on that statement? Well, I, I mean, I, I can see why he said that. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. I really don't. Um, well, because he, he says that, it, that really Hop was developed inside of the BBS side of the house. Now, I don't have any hmm. information white paper, so on that states otherwise that agrees or disagrees with this point of view, but it was a comment that he made on the show. Yeah. And I've always been interested the more and more people I talk to because I look at hop as being a bolt on to BBS. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I can be absolutely incorrect from, from some people's point of view, but I look at it and I go, when I get to talk to somebody who's a behaviorist, I always like to ask that question because I'm interested in their point yeah. of view, especially for some, because you've been doing this for about 28 years now. So around the same amount of time that, give or take that hop has been around based on the information that I can mm-hmm. find. So your point of view, of course, will be important. Well, I guess I, you know, and again, I have no expertise on this either, but it's, it was my impression just based on, you know, when I started reading about it and where, you know, if I, if you look at um, reason and Decker, you know, they, as my understanding really started in the area of, of medical errors uh, where, where BBS, frankly, it has never gained much traction. So it, to me, it almost seemed like they were kind of on parallel tracks. Um, and then just, you know, in the last, whatever it's been, eight to 10 years have kind of kind of come together. Um, I do think behavior-based safety has, has laid the groundwork, I think, in many ways. Um, because really prior to behavior-based safety, I mean, it was command and control, right? Just you just tell people <laughs> what to do, and you you don't talk to the worker. And you know, it's one of the things that bothers me about people blaming BBS for for the blame the worker mentality. 
it, you know, pe- workers were being blamed long before BBS ever came along, right? That was always the default, that if they did something wrong, it was their fault and we would punish them. Um, we tried to correct that by saying, look, there's reasons why you know, you start with the assumption, right? Always, if it's if if it's a good worker, is is ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people are, they're just trying to do a good job. So why would a good worker do something that puts themselves or others at risk? There's reasons, and it's not because they're a bad person or they're stupid or they're lazy or all the other reasons you hear. So we were always trying to say, we've got to understand behavior and context. We've got to understand what's going on for that worker. Again, assuming it's a good worker, why would that good worker choose to do something that puts him at risk? Um, and so, you know, I think those those things, we were starting to have those conversations and trying to educate the people that we were working with to start looking at that. And I think then at the same time, the HOP folks are saying, we got to start talking to these workers more. You know, they, we've got to look at behavior and they would talk about it a little differently, but we've got to, we've got to look at what's happening in the environment and look at the systems people are working in to understand errors and, and obviously to, to create better systems to prevent errors. Um, so I, I guess I see them as, as parallel, but again, I have no, scientific evidence. (laughs) (laughs) So when it comes to the whole concept of when you hear that hop is a philosophy, how does that make you feel in that particular regard? Because behavior-based safety is not a philosophy. Yeah. Uh, Well, I guess. um, And I know I'm not supposed to ask the scientists about their feelings, (laughs) but I have this terrible habit of doing it all the time. Because that's just how I, I, I do my, my scientific work. But I also like to know how people feel about yeah. things because I think that kind of really drives a lot of it. To some yeah. Extent. Well, I, I mean, that was the, the first, my first exposure to the HOP, again, was sort of with the reason and Decker's kind of work was I loved the philosophy. And, and like I said, to me, the philosophy was very complementary to, you know, a behavioral philosophy. Um, but they just talked about it in a way that seems so much more compelling to a safety audience. Um, and, and I think the philosophy is very helpful. I mean, to, to, to get people to start thinking about safety differently, think in a, you know, we would use a little bit different language, but to say, you know, we've got to stop, we've got to stop blaming people. Uh, we've got to start looking at, what they're doing in context. I mean, I think that whole, if, if we want to call it a philosophy, great, but getting people to shift how they look at safe and at-risk behavior, how they look at errors. Um, how, and, and by the way, I would say that at every level, not just at the front line, because supervisors and managers are doing things they shouldn't be doing too, but not because they're bad people, but because of the the environment we put them in and, and, you know, all of the pressures on them and all those things. But that philosophy of shifting the way we look at performance uh, is very helpful. It's very helpful. And I, and I, you, you mentioned something there too about the supervisors. Let's just talk about mid-level management. I think it's a very interesting place for the mid-level management to be because they're kind of sandwiched in between depending on what's going on between the worker yeah and the actual organization, depending if there's a change going in. And let's say, for instance, they're, behave- they're looking at it from a BBS point of view, if they're looking at it from a pop point of view, sometimes I think that transition has to be very interesting for the middle mm-hmm. manager because 
everything's going to be based on, you're kind of like in the sandwich if you want to really look at it that way. You're the meat of the sandwich because things can go one way or the yeah. other. So when you do your BBS interactions with people that are in middle management, do you see a lot of pushback on regards of, I have to get the right information to the people that are possibly in the C level, and then I have to make sure mm-hmm. that I'm giving the correct information to the people that are out there on the Yeah, uh, it is a very, very difficult spot to be in. And um you know, sometimes the conversation with people at that level is your job is really to um, protect the people below you from whatever pressures you're getting from up above that are focused often largely on lagging indicators, right? So, so they're the ones who are having, getting called to the carpet, you know, around incident rate and those sorts of things. And so my advice to them is, you know, if that's what you're held accountable for, then then so be it. I'd love to work with senior leaders to get them off those lagging indicators and start holding you accountable for proactive things. But if we can't do that, then your job as a middle manager is the buck stops there. Don't then let that flow downhill. Your job is to figure out what you want your supervisors to do and your frontline folks to do to prevent incidents and hold them accountable for that. And, you know, and that, that's a hard thing for them to do because that's not what they're being held accountable for. So. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So now I have a question for you. Now, normally when an organization reaches out to you, are they in a, do you normally see a trend that they're in some kind of a, of a particular process or they're getting stuck at a certain mm-hmm. area inside of their system before they actually reach out and contact you? Yeah, we get a lot of people who will contact us and say some version of this. We have done everything we can think to do. We're, we've plateaued. We know that we're not doing a good job of behavior. You know, they'll often say that we don't have the behavior piece. Um, you know, so they know that they're not... They're not getting consistency around behavior, whether that's leadership behavior or frontline behavior or both usually. And so they come to us, you know, for help with that. Uh, We also obviously, as, as a lot of consultants do, get people coming to us because they've had you know, either a rash of incidents or a serious incident, fatality, um, and they're scratching their head often after an incident investigation where they figure out that behavior had something to do with the incident. And again, they have done everything they can think to do to ensure that people do things consistently and, and they're just, they know they're just not getting it. And so they come to us uh, for help with that. And that's really that's really, in a nutshell, what we do is improve behavioral consistency. And a lot of our work now is with leaders. We do more safety le- behavioral safety leadership work than we do frontline behavior-based safety. Well, I always find it funny when you walk in and sometimes have a conversation with certain leaders where they say, well, we have this problem and we need it fixed by X timeline. <laughs> Do you run into any of those issues? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How quickly can you fix this? Yeah. And, and you know, again, talking about philosophy changes, you know, part of it is getting, getting leaders to see that it's not about fixing them. It's actually about fixing you, <laughs> turns out, because leaders are the ones who create the context within which work is done, right? So, they're creating and managing the systems. Uh, and so... You know, it really has to start with them changing what they're doing 
to get the change. And, and so, yeah, we get a lot of, you know, people are impatient. They want improvement right away. But, you know, I always say, if you've ever tried to change a habit, if you ever tried to, you know, lose weight or exercise more, that doesn't happen overnight. So you have to be patient. Now, Judy, what thing has surprised you so far throughout your career that you didn't expect to happen? Huh. Well, I, I will tell you, when I first started, um, we had to define what we meant by behavior. That um, was just not a word that was used in a business setting. People would say, "What? What? well, my kids behave, but what are you talking about? You know, so uh, that was a surprise. And that was a, really a function of behavior-based safety that really changed everything. And the, the fact that people now really understand that the behavior is at the heart of everything we do, not just safety. And it's really important to pay attention to behavior and why people behave and understanding it and, and better, better being able to set people up to do the right things. That, that has been a pleasant surprise. Um, I'm also surprised, frankly, when I look back at the progress we've made in safety. I mean, it's remarkable when I think of when I went into organizations, how the incident rates, you know, it's just so much more, you know, so many more people getting hurt. Um, such a really um, now it feels archaic way of managing safety. I mean, we've we've come a long, long way and we've certainly got more to go. But um, it's been it's been really nice to see that improvement. And I think it's just, it's kind of um, taking off. I, my hope is, and I think HOP and a behavioral approach or, you know, if, if we can join forces are going to make this happen. But I think if we can get to the point where we stop relying on lagging indicators in safety, um, we're going to see a step change in safety. Well, I, I normally have a lot of conversations with people about their beliefs in safety and how they look mm -hmm. at things. And not that I think you're going to retire anytime soon, but I always like to ask this question. What do you think your legacy will be for the industry? Oh, well. <laughs> no pressure. Well, no pressure it. at all. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that's a heady question. Well, I hope that, and it's probably largely through my books and maybe um, maybe some of the articles that I've written that, that I, I just, they're great articles, by the way, I, I want to add you. that in. Thank you. I, I hope that I've been able to help some people view behavior differently, uh, that, that they get away from again, that the, the blame, the blame and punish blame and train that doesn't help anybody ever, uh, and, and get more to, uh, understanding behavior, understanding consequences and the influence they have on behavior, understanding the importance of, of talking to people, uh, looking at behavior from the performer's perspective. If I could, you know, think that I helped, you know, some people get better at that, that would be a good thing. Judy, do you have anything that's coming up that might be open to the public where they can come and see you speak? Uh, that's a good question. I am doing, uh, open the public. I can't think of anything in the near future. Um, yeah, I, I usually have something. I, I'm the, uh, the places that I'm speaking at are not open to the public in the near future. I know the, pub, the public portion is yeah. really the difficult part. Yeah. The yeah, I'm not speaking at ASSP this year for the first time in many, many years. Um, but I. But you're still but you're still coming. To well, Orlando, I probably right? will because, you know. 
Yeah. Hey, that's okay. where you live, right? It's Orlando. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's always a great conference. And now if people want to get more information about you, where can they go? The best place would be our website. So aubreydaniels.com. So A-U-B-R-E-Y Daniels with an S.com. Um, there's lots of resources there. So you can buy our books there. You can uh, get articles. Um, there's a few. We do what we call behavioral minutes, short little videos where we just share little bits of information that usually people find helpful. So there's lots of resources on that website. Well, Judy, I do appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This brings this episode of The Jay Allen Show to an end. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. It won't be too long before we're back with another episode of The Jay Allen Show. Goodbye for now. Want more of The Jay Allen Show? Go to safetyfm.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.